Welcome to Still Unbelievable, a podcast by Reason Press, where we examine religious claims, especially those made by Christians, and we regularly respond to items that are featured on the podcast, Unbelievable. We embrace dialogue, but as sceptical former believers, we will also criticise unfounded claims and unsupported beliefs. Hello everybody, welcome to another episode of Still Unbelievable. It is your regular, I was going to say badasses, why was I going to say badasses? It's your regular ruffians, I think it's because I've had a bad week, but we'll get to that in a minute. Anyway, welcome dear listeners, this is another episode of Still Unbelievable, it is your usual twosome, Andrew and Matthew. Hello old chap, how are you? How have you been? It's been a few weeks since we actually last spoke, it's been like that, hasn't it? It has been. Uh, I'm I'm doing uh, I'm doing great. I'm fine as uh, I'm fine as frogs here. In fact, if, if I were any better, I'd have to pick you. <laughs> that's, just, that's just how I'm doing. Most of that's well, I aspire to being you because I've had a rough past fortnight. Really, I've had a stinker of a cold which has hung around for more than a week. I'm right at the tail end of it, so I've got my obligatory British warm beer here next to me just to keep my throat a bit wet. I've had a quite a dramatic computer crash in the in the last week no data was lost thankfully but uh, that didn't help i'm ridiculously busy at work and uh, as everybody knows as i keep talking about i'm right in the middle of play season so i'm 10 days away from opening night for the, from the next play i'm out four nights a week for rehearsals and two weeks after the next play by the way I'm stage manager for this play so while I haven't got lines to learn it is actually quite an important role and I've never done this before so I'm a little bit nervous about that but two weeks after that show goes on I have actually got lines to learn for another one hour long one act play so I am stupidly busy and stressed with computers and stressed with having sickness in the house and uh, stressed with being very busy at work don't help in all of that so all of that is a roundabout saying is podcast scheduling has been very very difficult i know there's a couple of emails i haven't responded to so if people are listening to this and they've had a late reply from me or non-reply genuine humble uh, apologies uh, from me on that so um good to hear that you're a little bit happier than i am andrew but we'll try and see if we can uh, fix that i noticed you didn't slip in the windows user comment when i mentioned the computer crash 30 seconds ago well you didn't take a breath but i, I was going <laughs> to, i was going to say um uh, i don't keep data on a windows box either <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I anticipate the crash is uh windows is a virus and <laughs> Yes, quite. <laughs> no, yes. look, uh, I, I I said something in the run-up that, that got recorded, so I'm going to have to be careful lest you cut it in at some point in the future. Uh, uh, there are Microsoft technologies that I think highly of. I bash Windows because um, sometimes I think it pretty well deserves it, but Microsoft does make technologies I think pretty highly of. C-sharp as a programming language, I think, is an admirable language, and Microsoft has done a great job in multi-platform support for that language and for their other .NET first-class languages, um, VB, F-sharp, et cetera. So, Are you sure um, you're all right? I, sh- sh- well, I think I'm aspiring to be you. <laughs> well, <laughs> there, are worse, there are definitely worse things you can aspire to be. 
In other news, I did actually earlier today run the Windows 11 update checker on my computer and my motherboard is 10 years old and no, it will not run Windows 11. So I've got to find some cash from somewhere and do a hardware upgrade on my computer. So I've got that joy to look forward to. Will that happen before Christmas? I don't know. Unlikely, but we shall see. Mm. Was it the little security module that that more recent boards have that it complained about, or was it some other? I think it's it's an it's an Intel i five chip on it, and I suspect Microsoft drew an arbitrary line at what kind of processor they would allow Windows eleven to run on, and I made the wrong side of the line. I think mm. Mm. And, it, and it might just be it simply hasn't got the power to run some of the things that Windows eleven will do. Right. Right. And if I were Intel, I'd have drawn an arbitrary line at Microsoft. (laughs) (laughs) There we go. There's the entry I know and love. But it could also be that Microsoft want to thin down the amount of hardware that they're having to support. And if you draw an arbitrary line at stuff that's more than six years old, you significantly reduce the amount of hardware you have to support. Yeah, I think uh, I think that's right. And I think that in in some cases, Microsoft not having drawn that line in the past uh, has held them back some. I, I don't have a problem with high-end technology providers. I know Microsoft isn't really high. Okay, sorry, sorry. No, I, I don't have a problem with our core technology providers drawing a line somewhere, um, you know, so that we keep moving into the future because it's time to to stop supporting uh, some of that older stuff. As well, with this one caveat. Um, Am I going to have to put in a thing at the beginning of this episode? Skip forward to one hour in if you don't understand technology or you're not interested. Yeah, except if you say if you're not interested, they're just going to go to the end. And, you know, (laughs) but but I don't you know, as long as Microsoft, if if you're going to draw the line somewhere, you've got to be aware that there's a huge body of people that that may not make it to Windows 11 and given the the state of the electronic world, you've got to provide security patches for those people for yeah, a long time. Absolutely. Okay, so with the technology stuff done, I hope we haven't bored you for the last two hours and 45 minutes or however long it was, dear listeners. So anyway, back to our regular podcast programming. We, I've got a couple of things that I want to bring up. Genexis, who we did last year, they did a, a series of online sessions which Andrew and I joined and we did our review episodes of those they did a couple of their lectures again this year but they did those live in person they always said that that's what they were going to do if you remember the interview we did uh, with uh, the guy from that was it Paul his name was and mm-hmm. um, anyway so those were in live I believe if you go to genexis.org which is a website address the videos from that will be available on there. I haven't gone and looked at and watched them yet, but those are there to view. Um, but because they were live and in person and I was a- unable to attend, I can't do any reviews specifically of those. It'd be nice if they came over to Bristol and my side of the UK and did some there because I would definitely make the effort to go up and do those. The other sessions that we reviewed last year was the Christian Evidence Society. We did those, they did a series of five lectures and we reviewed those. And um, they, I believe, they've announced that they're going to be doing some more, which I think is next month, November. So I need to look that up, get my act together and see if we can get on and review some of those, listen to those. Are you up for that, Andrew? I am. Did you enjoy that enough to be able to do it again? Yes, I did. did. Okay, so hopefully we can do that. And I'm going to try and get the final 
promise that I did for Alpha, which is the Alpha Youth thing. The videos for Youth Alpha are available on YouTube, so I'm going to circulate those to Andrew and Darren at some point in the next couple of weeks. And hopefully we're going to be able to get those reviewed as well. I promised you ages and ages and months ago that we would do those. So I'll try and fit those in before the end of the year. I think there were a couple of other things that I wanted to mention as well. Oh, yes, our friends over at Unbelievable, because we do say that we do the review what happens over on Unbelievable. They've launched a new apologetics course, which they've called Confident Christianity. Those of you who listen to Unbelievable have heard Justin Briley advertising that and if you jumped in there early you would have been able to get a subscription to that for half price or at least the access to it. I don't know what we're going to do about that. I don't know how much of my money I actually want to spend on getting access to those videos but if I'm going to do any kind of review on them I'm probably going to have to. So Andrew and I are going to have some kind of conversation not here in public but we'll have one and we'll work out what we're going to do about that and how much attention we want to pay to those specific uh, apologetics videos because there are going to be many other types of apologetics videos that we can review. So we're going to make a decision about I think that's everything that I wanted to talk about before we got into tonight's episode. Andrew, was there anything you wanted to flag up? Uh, only that there's, uh, you said earlier that there's an email or two that you haven't responded to. I, I likewise have not responded to a couple of emails. I promise you the problem is not that I don't want to respond to the emails. If you are waiting for a response from me, the responses are coming. It has been a crazy last couple months for me. Thank you for being willing to email us. Apologies for my delays as well. Right. Oh, yes. Two more things I wanted to flag up. One is we did have some feedback a while back to say that we had not enough female voices on this podcast and I want to say yes that is absolutely true I apologize for not making more effort to address that it was definitely an unintentional consequences of some of the guests that we've invited and some of the conversations that we've had I will absolutely make an attempt to address that and put and actually make it a conscious focus of mine to make sure that I have a better balance between male and female voices on this podcast because I think this is a very important space and there are a lot of women represented in this space and I'm doing all of my listeners a disservice by not paying more attention to that. So A, thank you to the person who emailed in and and made that observation and thank you for making me more aware of it because I did know it, I just wasn't doing anything positive about it and I, I will now. So I want to acknowledge that. And just one more final thing. I'm doing a bit of a shift around in the scheduling of the upcoming episodes for Still Unbelievable. There are two episodes that Andrew and I have recorded with our friend David Johnson over from Skeptics and Seekers. And we're reviewing a YouTube video discussing people leaving the faith. Those are already recorded and already edited, but they are going to be released into our feed after this episode and I'm doing that intentionally because I want the episode that we're doing now to be out as soon as I possibly can and I don't want it to wait beyond the ones that we're doing so I'm going to shift that around so I can actually say now what the next episode two episodes of Still Unbelievable are going to be because they're recorded and edited and ready to go but I I feel that that's the better order to do it so Mm -hmm. after you've heard this one the next two episodes that you'll listen to are David Johnson joining us it's a special two-part talking about people leaving the faith so that's what 
that is and i think that is the end of everything that i wanted to bring up and say so andrew do you want to say what it is we're doing for this episode and introduce us into it sure so a little while back we reviewed uh 10 questions for atheists that was uh braxton hunter and uh and in fact when we reviewed those 10 questions for atheists you can go back into the to the archive to listen to that review uh, some of our comments about the way he presented the 10 questions uh, were either things that that he recognized for himself or he heard our answers or other podcasters and YouTubers had the same sorts of critiques. The questions being a little unclear, the dialogue between the questions making it difficult to understand the questions themselves. So at any rate, he offered a next 10 questions here in 2021 for atheists. These questions are much shorter, much more uh, concise. We are always interested in sort of answering questions that Christians have about atheism, about skepticism, about humanism, about our worldviews in general and how they uh, compare. And with that in mind, that's what this episode is about. It's about Braxton Hunter's 10 Questions for Atheists, the 2021 version. And uh, we're going to get right into it. We are. And just a heads up, some of them are very, very short and some of them are not specifically on topic. But I think that was intentional. I think Braxton was intending to have some questions that, that lightened the mood and cooled the temperature down a bit. TV show or whatever that's <laughs> yeah. So, hey, I've got a fun answer for that one. I'm going to be interested because you and I didn't um, we didn't talk about this much in in the run up. So we're going to have perspectives that we didn't compare ahead of time. So this is going to be interesting. And that's exactly how I like it as well. So, yes, so let's get straight into it. So cue Braxton's intro and question one. Last year, I made a video, 10 Questions for Atheists. That's in a playlist that has 12 episodes as I listened to what atheists said and then interacted with that. There were a lot of responses and I still get responses to this day from that video. Now, admittedly, there were some things in that video that might've been tongue in cheek, but I genuinely wanted to hear the answers to those questions. Quite a few atheists seemed to appreciate that I was trying to understand their positions in a greater way, but many still didn't think my questions were genuine. A lot of people also thought that I was too wordy for the question to come out in a precise way. So here I'm asking these questions as simply and concisely as I possibly can and without any snark whatsoever. I genuinely want to know the answers to these questions. Question one, if you have a deconversion story from any world religion, would you mind sharing that story? If you grew up in a non-religious household, what was it like to experience being around other people who were raised religious? Let's just go straight out and say it. The second half of this question, I can't answer. And I suspect you can't answer either, Andrew. So let's just drop the second half of this question and we'll go straight for the first answer. And I think shoving a question like this right at the beginning of 10 questions is a little bit challenging because my deconversion story is told over many blog posts on my blog which i now don't actively post on very much at all these days or if at all i can't remember when the last post was if it, that wasn't related to this podcast but it's confessions of a yak.wordpress.com and it's told over multiple multiple 
blog posts uh, there will take ages to read my deconversion story is told over on the graceful atheist it's a what one and a half hour episode there and that's not even the full story i've told it in bits here so basically that's all taking me minutes to say it's not appropriate for me to tell my full story here because it would take up the whole episode and andrew wouldn't get a word in and i know you guys only listen to this podcast because you like andrew's voice so that's not what the emails say man i'm just (laughs) (laughs) so i don't know how to answer this question succinctly but I, I, I don't know, do you have any thoughts on that before I actually give it to go, Andrew? Just that I think um, whatever you say here, it, it's worthwhile because not many people talk about deconversion when they spent part of their formative years as missionaries, or at least I haven't heard a lot of those stories. They may, they may be out there. I don't know a lot of them, and I've seen a lot of deconversion stories. And one of the things that I find most interesting about your story is that you did grow up in a mission field. Presumably, you saw the good that Christianity can do if, if you did. I'm not, not, being, not making claims about yeah. your story. If Christianity has a positive benefit, it's the mission field where it's often claimed that Christianity does the most good, right? So church is dying in America, it's dying in England, but boy, it's not dying in Africa. Christianity's lighting Africa on on fire, right? You hear these kinds of things all the time. And so one of the things that I find the most compelling about your story is that you did grow up, in at least in part, in a mission field in Zambia, and even with those lights of, of Christianity presumably doing whatever good they would do in a non-Western world, you still found your way out. And for me, that really is compelling. Thank you, Andrew. Okay, then. So very briefly, yep, indoctrinated as a young earth creationist in a very rural part of Zambia at boarding school at a very young age, along with many, many other people there. Though there's some of those people from my school days there in Zambia are still Facebook friends with me. Some of those people are still Christians and some of them have a very, I was going to say simplistic, that's probably the wrong word, but still a very fundamental faith and some some don't. And those with the slightly more fundamental faith are also counted in those who are a little bit shady on their science of medicine. I, mm-hmm. I'll leave the rest of that unsaid. There's that, and yet I've seen many amazing things, some natural, some attributable to wonders, I guess. Um, I've seen what Christian people in action do to other people, both good and bad. I got wedged and levered out of Christianity through a greater understanding of science and evolution because I was an adult creationist, which is quite a strange sentence to say. I don't really know what else to say on that. Dear listeners, if you would like me to give a much more in-depth story, interview style of my deconstruction story, and if you've already listened to Dave, my interview with Dave the Grateful Atheist and you think there's gaps that would like to be filled in, I'll give you some example. Um, you, you may well have already heard before, there was the incident with my mother being kidnapped. There's a uh, uh, um, a deliverance experience I had here in the UK at around about 19, 20 years of age. 
there's uh, various other oddities and the experiences, you know, things that I've seen, interactions with witch doctors uh, in Africa, being held at gunpoint in a car at a roadblock in Zambia. There are, you know, what was it like for me as a white minority, but with ultimate privilege living in a black majority country where everybody was significantly poorer than me? You know, all those kinds of things. What was it like moving to the UK at 18 years of age with no experience of being in a white majority country where everyone's got everything? There are so many facets um, uh, of my upbringing which are unusual to, to many people. I, I get that and it's all completely natural and normal for me. If people want to hear me expound any parts of my story in greater detail, I'm very happy to do that on an episode. I'm I'm just not sure people are that interested in hearing me monologuing. But if I'm wrong on that, reasonpress.gmail.com and we'll fill it all. But I, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't want to use up half of this episode telling my story. So maybe we need to push that into another episode. And if you think that's a worthwhile episode of doing, please email in and we'll, we'll arrange it and we'll sort it out. We can probably get, you know, four or five episodes out of it if we really stretch it out, I reckon. Andrew, your story? Just on the back of that, I'll, I'll say that um, I would like to be the interlocutor there. I, I'd actually like to hear your story in full because um, I, I think that already there are some interesting details there. The, the idea that you're a minority with ultimate, ultimate privilege is one that's not only interesting from a religious perspective, but it's not the way I think lots of people see mission work, right? We see we see missionaries as as um, somehow sacrificing a lot, right? Uh, Jesus said, "Sell all you have and 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 go preach the gospel." You know, don't take a second cloak or or whatever, right? Uh, it depend on going house to house, don't you know? And so already I think there are uh, they're terribly interesting bits there and I know from your perspective it's sort of just a slice of your life right but maybe it puts mission work in some places in a bit of uh, it frames it in a way that some people don't uh, uh, you wouldn't expect for mission work so uh, a private school right so in, in some sense you aren't actually one of the kids that you're, you're, you're in a private school there's there's a lot there. I would I would love to spend uh, an episode or, or or two at least unpacking your story. Okay, I will assume that we're not going to get flooded with the episodes of no, don't do it. So you, okay, we can arrange that for for next year and see how we get on. But okay. what about you? How much of your story can you fit into a couple of minutes for the answer to this question? I probably feel the same. I will say that I grew up in a mixed Christian household. My dad's mother, my paternal grandmother, was Methodist all her life. Um, she played piano in a Methodist church um, all her adulthood. Uh, and, and I can actually see the little church. Uh, it was only about a half mile from my house. And my parents were ultimately Southern Baptist, so this is this is practically um, uh, this is practically knife fighting uh, in, in a Christian context in the South, right? The Baptist and the Methodist, um, and and I ended up uh, in an even more conservative 
tradition than the, the Southern Baptist. I ended up uh, in the Church of Christ. And uh, what was it like to grow up in a household where it was Christian? Well, they didn't like my faith. So that perhaps is something that's worth unpacking in in some future episode in part, right? Because uh, my family wasn't the kind of Christian that I was, anybody in my family. There was no one that was the kind of Christian I was. That was pretty strange. I didn't have any atheist friends that were that were serious atheists. So, uh, you know, it's it's the southern U.S., right? There, there were no serious atheists. There were the obvious usual grade school questions, things like, can God create a rock he can't lift? In some sense, it was all Christian all the time. I didn't realize until, uh, uh, until my adulthood that there were atheists and that they had good reasons not to believe. And it was as an adult when I was fully capable uh, at least in my view of critical thinking, that I started asking for myself some of those questions that other people ask. And that's how I found the exit. I, I didn't get challenged with atheism as a young person. So my exit from Christianity happened entirely as an adult and didn't have anything to do with my upbringing. Yes, mine was entirely as an adult as well. And I think one of the things for me that was a big intellectual challenge was meeting and chatting and discussing with people who knew about Christianity and still rejected it. Because up until then, my upbringing and my indoctrination was such that all people needed to believe Christianity was to know about it. Now, once you understood it, how would you do anything but believe it? And meeting people, people who intellectually at least I respected and admired because they were clearly bright and brilliant people and thought things through about the world and had really good knowledge about lots of things. And that knowledge included you know, knowing about Christianity, knowing tenets about Christianity, and they could critique it without being a, a shouty, angry atheist and say, I reject all of this for this, this, this and this. And being exposed to those kinds of people really shook me. On my way out, I had a similar experience. My first introduction to people who didn't believe the way I did caused a real shakeup internally. Mm. Uh, I think I've said in the past, uh, I had a friend who, uh, his name is Sean, and, and he asked me, uh, sorry, he said to me a thing that ultimately contributed a great bit to my exit from Christianity. And that is um, truth is a process of successive approximation. He didn't believe in truth in a capital T sense. And the, my trouble is I can't unhear those kinds of things. And, and so when you, when you ask against capital T truth, is there a better process of arriving at truth, a successive approximation? Is this thing that I think of as capital T truth you know, does it hold up better than a process of successive approximation? It seems counterintuitive to say, well, no, successive approximation, uh, it, it seems intuitive to say, but capital T truth must be better than successive approximation. 
right? That, that a process of continuing refinement should never be able to distill a truth that is better than capital T truth in any context. Ultimately, I found that not to be the case. That in fact, our successive approximations of truth are better than the capital T truths that I that I thought uh, I could never I could never walk away from. Yeah, there's um I don't know if the analogy works, but there's a concept of if you're traveling from point A to point B, but mm. your mode of transport, all it can ever do is half the distance in each iteration. Each iteration, you get closer to your destination. But if all you're ever doing is halving the distance, do you ever actually arrive? But at some point, you're going to get so close that the distinction between the distance that's left to travel and having arrived is so tiny, they're probably indistinguishable. And I guess that's what you're talking about in terms of forever having approximations and arriving at truth. Do you necessarily ever arrive, but your approximations will at some point get so good and so close and so accurate that the distinction is not worth arguing about? Oh, that's right. And and the process of successive approximation for truth led me to very different truths than the capital T truths that that I uh, that I ultimately supported um, before Sean Williams. So one of those was there is a God that created the universe. When I started to think about how would I approximate whether that's true or not. So you start digging into some science, right? This sort of really dense, very, <laughs> sorry, that's that's my little girl. She has come up and said, hello, everyone. Hey, babe, how are you? And so when I started asking these sorts of questions yeah. about capital teacher, the process of successive approximation didn't lead me to the things that I already held as true. Um, I think that was the universe telling you it's time to move on to the next question. Uh, almost certainly. So, question two. Question number two. Is there anything that Christian apologists or philosophers bring that you actually do consider to be good evidence for God? And if not, how do you define evidence? This is one of our favorite topics, isn't it, Andrew? We've uh, batted this one around a few times, haven't we? We have. And in fact, there's a variation of this question coming up as well. So we won't spend too long here, um, but there's a similar sort of question uh, coming up. It's it's less technical, but it's, it asks almost the same thing, really. This is that whole challenge about philosophy, apologetics and evidence. Do you want to say it or shall I say it? Uh, go ahead. Arguments are not evidence. Can we have an amen? Amen. So, so they're not. This is this is most apparent even in a, a, a world of logic and syllogisms, right? Arguments are evidence because they can only ever provide a half of, of an answer. So a, a syllogism can only be true when we're talking about the natural world if it is both well-formed, right? The, the conclusion proceeds necessarily from the premises and it's actually true about the world. So if I said all snakes are mammals and Matthew is a snake, therefore Matthew is a mammal, the argument's perfectly reasonably constructed. 
it leads to a deductive conclusion, but the conclusion is false. Why? Because the way uh, the way we define mammal excludes snakes. So that should always tell you arguments aren't evidence. Yeah, I, basically the dictionary definition of evidence is the available body of facts or information indicating whether a belief or proposition is true or valid. And what apologists and philosophers bring are what Andrew's just been describing, syllogisms or structures or arguments, which usually have these facts or information built in as part of their proposition or their premises. So the argument brings the evidence and draw, tries to draw a conclusion from the evidence. But what could an apologist or a philosopher bring that could be defined as evidence for God? Well, not really an argument. They need to bring the evidence, they need to show a way in which the evidence shows God. And this is easily demonstrable with, when you get into a conversation with an apologist and they bring up an argument that says God, they say, my question usually, and we'll probably get to this a little bit later on as well in one of the other questions, my response to an apologist's argument trying to show God is the question, okay, great. Now, what experiment can we do to confirm your conclusion? And what do we get from that? We don't get an answer which includes an experiment. We either, we get further arguments or we say that we're trying to do philosophy wrong or we get equivocations. Okay, We don't actually get a straightforward answer of an experiment that would help to confirm the conclusion. And that should be a red flag. It should. And in fact, it's hard to see in some sense what experiment could provide evidence because a great many orthodox Christian traditions, God is a non-physical, non-temporal being. It's hard to see what sort of experiment we could do that would demonstrate that a non-temporal, non-physical being existed. Yeah, I'd like to bring a real life example into this because it's all well and good talking around these uh, these nuanced subjects and, and, and talking vaguely about things. So I'd like to bring a real world example of how arguments based on something that might or might not be a fact don't necessarily give you the right conclusion. Here is the scenario, and I can say this is a real world scenario. This is a, an event that genuinely happened. It's probably about 20 years old. This, my wife had a car accident. It's about 20 years ago. Somebody ran it. It was a head-on accident. It was a relatively low-speed accident, so there was no serious injuries. You know, she did get damage to her foot from the foot pedal because of, as a result from the argument, and she did have some some bruising. But no, it wasn't a serious accident in terms of being airlifted to hospital, etc. Anyway, so she had this head-on car accident. It was the other driver's fault. She was in a coned-off section of the highway. It was supposed to be her right of way. And this person came around the corner in the same section of uh, coned off highway and hit her head on. Now, there were supposed to be traffic lights controlling this section of highway because it was coned off. There were roadworks going on. It was around the corner. You couldn't see the exit out the other end. So you didn't know whether it was safe. There were supposed to be traffic lights controlling it. And my wife said the light was green for her to go. And the person that hit her said there wasn't a traffic light at the other end. Is his statement that there wasn't a traffic light the other end good enough to consider as evidence that there was, in fact, no traffic light at the other end? 
And that's a straightforward question. How would you answer that question, Andrew? On balance and probability, it seems unlikely that there's that there's no traffic light on his side. We tend to put traffic lights up at intersections where we expect people uh, would bump into each other without them. Yeah. Right? So, so on, on balance and probability, it seems unlikely. I can't say that I buy his story, even in the most charitable case. Yeah. In fact, what it turns out was the case was it was really unfortunate timing and the works vehicle was passing in front of the traffic light that was at his end. So he didn't see it. So he just plowed straight on in. Mm, OK, now that's not a situation that I that I would have thought of. But we you know, the thing that we all know. Is when you're approaching an intersection, it is not just on one driver or the other to be cautious. Mm-hmm. When you're approaching an intersection, uh, okay, I, I live in the United States. I only know what our driver's manuals say, but I've got to presume that your driver's manuals uh, say the same thing to all drivers. When you're approaching an intersection, lights don't give you, uh, or lack of lights don't give you the impetus to throw away caution. Exactly. So the point that I'm trying to eke out of this is, while his statement was there was no traffic light at his end, and while it's technically true that he didn't see one, that is not evidence that there wasn't a traffic light. Right. There was a traffic light. The evidence is he didn't see the traffic light that that was there. The evidence is not there was no traffic light. That's the point I'm trying to eke out of this. So Mm -hmm. when apologists and philosophers try to say this happened and it was evidence of God. I mentioned earlier that I had a deliverance experience. Now, somebody would say, and in fact, while I was still a Christian, I would say that my deliverance experience was evidence for God. And it was one of the things that held me in Christianity for, for the longest. It wasn't until I was able to dismiss that experience that was actually able to dismiss Christianity itself. So the question is, was that experience that I was holding on to evidence for God? Or was it evidence that our mind is a really complex structure and that under certain stressful situations, it will produce to us things that are slightly more comforting to us. And in my specific case, presented something that I was familiar with. In other words, Christianity and something bad controlling me. Mm-hmm. So there's the point that I'm trying to, to get to. So Christians, apologists specifically, or Christian philosophers, will take things from the world and experiences and events and objects, and they'll phrase them into an argument and say, this is evidence for God. And the question I want to throw back in there is, is it really? Like the guy who failed to see the traffic light and gave the wrong report. Like me with my deliverance experience and gave it the wrong report. Is it is the things that apologists and philosophers bring that they claim are evidence for God really evidence for something else instead? And they're misattributing it to be evidence for God. So that's my challenge to Braxton's question here and the conclusion that he has, which is why I go to the question. Okay, fine. There's your conclusion. What experiment can we do to confirm your conclusion? Because that's what we need to do. That's how science works. That's what we need to do to validate it. 
to confirm this guy's claim that there wasn't a traffic light, what experiment do you do? You walk to the other end and you have a look. Right, and I will say here just as a, maybe, maybe slightly tangentially, though I don't think very much. If you witness, so, so let's, let's just say that you had some, you had some experience, you saw somebody uh, have a limb regrown, or you saw somebody turn water to wine, or, or somebody's stick became a snake and, and ate somebody else's stick that became a snake. Yeah, look, not my fault, it's in the book of Exodus, I'm not making this stuff up. Somebody prays and, uh, or, or, or smites a stone with a, uh, with a rod and, and water comes from it. And, and let's just say that you have good reason to think that a God did it. And, and let me also say, uh, it's the kind of evidence that other people should buy, right? So, so you've got this story and Matthew and I should buy it too, because your evidence is that compelling. You're still not getting me very far, and here's why. Getting water from a stone doesn't equal there's a heaven. Getting water from a stone doesn't equal there's a hell. Getting water from a stone doesn't equal that there's somebody who can rightly divide the good guys and the bad guys. Getting water from a stone doesn't mean that there's somebody that can be in all places at all times, and I could go on like this for, for a long time. And so what I'm saying to you is this. Even if Matthew should have believed his experience. It doesn't mean he should believe every other possible story that could be somehow related to it. Evidence for a claim is not evidence for all possible claims. So I, I urge you to be careful about the credibility that you lend to a story and only let the evidence speak to the thing that it speaks to. If I had a car that got 200 miles to the gallon, it wouldn't mean that all cars did. If I had a computer that was uh, better than Matthew's computer, <laughs> that wouldn't mean that all computers are better than Matthew's computer. <laughs> but they all probably are at this point in time. <laughs> so, so whatever you think of as evidence, I think the, the point that I sort of bring out here is evidence for one claim is only evidence for that one claim. Yes, but the claim isn't the evidence. That's right. The claim is not the evidence. And if there's evidence for that claim, it only applies to that claim or, or maybe in a general sense to claims of that kind. Right. So I'm not mm. saying that. I'm not saying that in science we can't generalize. Surely, surely we can. Even our generalizations have their limits. A thing that answers everything answers nothing. It's sort of the uh, is sort of the rough summary of that. So to summarize, the short answer to question two is no, not really. Right. Question three. Straightforwardly, I'm a dog person. Here's my dog, Indiana. Dogs, cats, both or neither. Okay, here we go. One of the lighthearted ones. Why does it have to be binary cats and dogs? Why not chickens? Hey, um, I live under the rainbow flag, man. Uh, I'm, I'm okay with whoever, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm the kind of guy I am, but I don't have a problem with the kind of guy other people are. And uh, cats, dogs, chickens. Uh, I think I'd better be careful about saying goats and sheep, given the part of the world I'm from. 
<laughs> pygmy goats. Yeah, yeah, cows, uh, cows, horses. Um, yeah, uh, I'm I'm fine with uh, I'm fine with them all. Uh, we have dogs and cats, uh, and we're looking at chickens too. I know that you're a chicken owner, actually. I we've got two hens at home. We did have three a year ago. One of them didn't last very long, unfortunately. She got egg retentions and she died within two months of us getting them. But the other two have made it through more than a year. We mostly get one egg from each a day and that's enough for our egg needs. We don't buy any eggs in the supermarket. So, And the other thing is the area of the country that we live in down here in Somerset uh, is very boggy. We get a lot of crane flies in the area and they lay their larva in the boggy ground. And chickens are very, very good at digging up the larvae from the ground. And so in the year and a bit that we've had chickens, our crane fly, because our house normally gets inundated with crane flies every August, except this August, because the chickens had been through and cleared all the larva up from the garden. Something that a cat or a dog would never do. Chickens, seriously, they're the boss. So I, I, we've actually um, we've actually been considering this. This is such an aside, uh, but we have problems with mosquitoes here in this part of the, the country that I'm in. Uh, and, and by problems with mosquitoes, I mean, if I say one, that's too many. Right. Um, but we really do have uh, we really do have a lot of them. And uh, that's part of the reason we've been thinking about getting uh, chickens and letting them letting them roam the yard because um, they can mostly feed themselves. Do you guys buy any feed at all? We do buy feed. Yeah, buy a bag of feed and I stock them up. So every week it's part of my routine at the weekend. Clear out their bedding. Make sure their their feed is brief. We've got a feeder that will fill up, which we can fill up on the Saturday and that will see them all the way through to the next Saturday. So mm. we do that. We buy grips as well for them to put in to make sure that they have a reasonable calcium uptake. And we have them in an enclosed area so that their feed's all done. And we sometimes we give them choppings from the vegetable board. Grated carrot is a good one for them or corn on the cob. They really enjoy that as well. Potato and rice. Oh, they love rice. Really? So we'll we'll throw them those kinds of scraps as well. So yes, we do do buy feed. I don't think there's enough in our relatively small garden for them to be able to feed themselves all right and, and then there's there's mites powder as well um, because right. they, they have a wooden hutch as well and mites love to live around in the wood we, we have to regularly powder around the hutch and rub powder on them as well which it's not always a pleasant thing they don't always enjoy that well i don't think they ever enjoy it but they tolerate it but it's it's a necessary thing to do and the other reason why i don't like them wandering around all the time is they don't care where they deposit is probably mm. The, mm. The, the simplest way that I can put this. They don't discriminate. Uh. Yes. <laughs> it, it's not once or twice and then that's it for the day and you just pick it up later in the day when you're ready for it. These things, it's constant and it's everywhere. Ah, uh, interesting. Okay, good note since we have a two-year-old. Yeah, yes. Nice. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Fingers poke, fingers mouth. Yes, quite. Uh, uh, but to address the question as asked, I'm going to be quite blunt and put my uh, environmental hat on here. 
cats are evil. Cats are oh, rotten. You do not too. want cats. Now, I have a peeve about cats, and it's, it's I don't know if it's as relevant for the part of the world that you live in, Andrew, but certainly for the part of the world that I live in, it, it's extremely relevant. I live in a small housing estate of about 120 homes, I think there are, in this sprawl of minor roads. And then over the major road, opposite us, you know, there's a few hundred houses, you know. So in the UK, our town's like broken into pockets of 100 or so houses. And if you imagine this 100 or so houses, I'll have a little bit of scrubland and trees and stuff uh, around the, the edges of it. And I'm lucky in where I am is I can see wild deer often from my, my office window, maybe even wild foxes as well, and some wild birds of prey. And they live off the small rodents. Well, the deer don't. The deer eat the, you know, the, the vegetation, but the foxes and the birds of prey, they eat the small rodents that are in this area. And the land that's immediately adjacent to us is probably enough to house the rodents, which re- which feed the predators, you know, the foxes and the birds of prey that I've mentioned. But then, of course, we've got these 120 houses. And say let's say one in 10 houses has got a domestic cat. So that's probably a low estimate. But let's just say, you know, so that would make, what, 12 cats. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's more than 12. But let's just say it's 12 cats. So those 12 cats go out every day, no lead, no control. And every day, one of those cats will say, kill one of these wild rodents, etc., and remove it from the food chain for the wild animals. That's the effect that these domestic cats has on the wildlife in the area. It reduces the wild rodents so that the wild prey animals, the birds prey and the foxes, have less food to eat. So the land around us can now house fewer animals that I want to see in the wild, all because people have got domestic cats, which they let go out into their yard and then across the road and into the scrubland with no control whatsoever. So I am anti-cat. I am absolutely anti-cat. There's books on and studies on the effect that cats have on the immediate environment. And I'm very much anti-cat. So if it's a binary choice, it's no question. It, it's dogs because you keep them in the house and you walk them on the lead. Until we do that with cats, Cats are wicked, cats are evil, and thou shalt not keep cats. End of. No discussion. Wow. Um, boy, so sorry, I own a cat. Um, <laughs> my little tuxedo cat, little black and white cat. She's not a hunter. In fact, she has very little outdoor survival skills. She was a rescue. And she's actually quite a good companion. I've never seen her kill a mouse or, uh, you know, a, a bird. Uh, or, or anything else, because she simply uh, she doesn't have that capacity. She's uh, she's quite weak, um, and that was part of the reason we rescued her, is we didn't expect her to survive. Uh, and she's she's pretty old. She's survived pretty well. She's about six years old now. She's doing fine. But in general, I think you're right. I did say cats are an ecological disaster, in, especially in neighborhoods. And it's not just rodents that they kill. They'll kill birds. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if they can. Uh, my cat can't. Um, she's not a jumper. In fact, she can't even run down the stairs. She gets her claws mm-hmm. hung in the carpet fibers. And, and then she just lays there and meows until somebody comes, <laughs> and, comes and, and, and lets her free. So, so she's really not a hunter. But yes, cats are a, 
uh, are an ecological disaster. They kill frogs too. Mm. And uh, and frogs occupy a pretty special niche in our ecosystem, and we need all of them that we can get. In fact, I don't know of anything a cat won't kill smaller than a cat. Yeah, and, they'll uh, just do it because they're bastards. Like yeah, I said, just, they're evil. Yeah, if I could just convince her to eat the mosquitoes, you know, I think that's about her speed. <laughs> but she doesn't seem to be, uh, doesn't seem to be interested. Just uh, tangentially for the question, dogs, cats, uh, why not chickens? I do have a problem with specialized animals. There's a name for this. I do have a problem with wild species, with people keeping wild species animals. Uh, if right. you keep a lion or a tiger or it, it, there was a, uh, a cobra, there was a, a storm down in Florida and some guy actually owned a cobra. Uh, his house got damaged and the cobra got loose. Real news article, you folks can look it up, Florida Cobra. Um, I do have a problem with that sort of, um, you know, people, people owning wild animals. I think that can be a real problem. There's been owners who've been killed by their constrictors as well, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, there have. Um, and, and, you know, I just sort of think of it as uh, Mother Nature purging the gene pool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I can't imagine a world where I would uh, happily keep a snake in my house. No. I did have a gecko in my bedroom as a teenager growing up, and I thought that was pretty cool. I'd be studying for my exams at home in my bedroom, and I'd just see this movement on the wall, and this gecko would... Uh, crawl across my wall i never worked out where he used to hide at night but i was quite happy to have a gecko in my bedroom and did you did you capture him or did he just show up and he, he just showed up i have no idea how he got into the house because you know yes we had windows that could open but they were always behind mosquito netting right right so goodness knows how I say he, I have no idea what gender this gecko was. I only ever saw one. It might have been two, and I only ever saw them one at a time. I never mm. saw a young one. So I know very little about that. He, this gecko just appeared one day while I was studying. And I saw, saw it several times over the years. It was always a comfort to see it. I loved having it around. Now I'm going to have to, uh, now I'm going to have to Google how to sex a gecko. But I'm sort of afraid what I'm going to find. So, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Right. Moving on. Question four. Are we all only on question four? We need to get a move on. Yeah, I get right. listeners saying you really spent that much time on cats, dogs, and chickens. <laughs> I know. <laughs> really? Did Jesus exist as a single historical individual? And if so, how reasonable do you think it is for people to hold the position that Jesus did not exist? First bit, I don't know, and neither do you. And second one, I don't care about the if so. Yes, it is reasonable to hold the position that Jesus did not exist because we don't know. That's my answer. Uh, I agree, and I'll just add to that. If you're listening and you think, oh, well, Matthew didn't go nearly far enough of that. Of course, Jesus existed, yada, yada, yada. The only reason you think it's important is because you don't actually think he was a human. Right. Here's why that's important. Even if Jesus, qua Jesus, the the dude, the, the guy with uh, 46 chromosomes, existed as a human being, 
that doesn't get you any closer to, and he was also God. Mm. I think the question doesn't go nearly far enough because the thing that's implied by the question is never actually asked straight out, which is if Jesus existed as an individual, how reasonable is it to think that he was also God? That's the thing that gets hidden that that Braxton wants people to take uh, on face value. If Jesus existed as a discrete single individual in history, then all of the claims about him that lead to his deification, his death, burial, and resurrection, his ascension, and, and his ultimate right to rule over, over humans, that must also be true. And even if he existed as a single individual in history, and we could lock that down as 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 true as the law of gravity, we still wouldn't be at a place where we can accept all of the other claims without careful investigation. Yeah, there's some specificality missing Mm -hmm. from that first question. Did Jesus as a biblical individual exist? No, because I frankly don't believe any of the miracle accounts. I just don't accept them at all, any of them. So if Jesus existed and did everything else but not the miracles, that's not Jesus of the Gospels. Right. So I, it's Jesus of the Gospels I don't believe existed. Did everything else happen except for the miracles? Well, that's a possibility. I'm, I'm going to go unlikely because we always know that these kinds of stories from history involve some kind of fabrication and falsity. The challenge is working out separating the falsity from the truth that's the bit that we don't know so that's why i can't answer that question yes no my only answer is i don't know and neither do you uh, to which i uh, agree 100 um, percent i think lots and lots of scholars say that he did. i think the consensus view is that there was a a historical jesus but I'm not sure what that buys us, right? So there was a, a guy named Jesus. He was, in fact, a Jew. He lived in Palestine a long time ago, right around the right time. He interacted with at least some of the people that, that we record in the New Testament. Let's let's say all of that is true. I'm not sure what that gets us. Mm-hmm. It, it, so here's the thing that Christian scholars also agree on at least a lot of them. Richard Balkan is is one of the most notable here. There's nothing we want. In an episode of Unbelievable with Justin Brierley, Richard Balkan was in debate with uh, Bart Ehrman, if I remember correctly. And Richard Balkan was completely willing to say that the Sermon on the Mount, that's uh, for, for those of you who aren't quite sure where that is, that's Matthew uh, chapters 5, 6, and 7. That's the Sermon on the Mount. Richard Balkan was, was completely willing to say Sermon on the Mount didn't happen that way. There, there's no reason to think that that this guy, Jesus, who who Richard Bauckham thinks did exist, uh, actually went up on a mountain and delivered Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7 as a sermon. Why? Because it doesn't read coherently like a sermon. And, and nobody that reads it thinks, oh, man, that was the greatest sermon ever. Why? Because it doesn't read like a sermon. It doesn't read like somebody... Um, teaching 
a, a coherent lesson. I'm not saying that there aren't principles in Matthew chapter five, six, and seven um, that, that you couldn't learn from. I don't know should, but what I am saying is it doesn't read like a lesson even for that time. And so whether Jesus existed is, is one question. Did he even say all of the things that are attributed to him? That's another question entirely. Mm -hmm. So, sorry, probably spent too much time on that answer, but there it is. Yeah, we simply don't have enough information. And that's also why it's reasonable to hold that he did not exist. I don't hold firmly to he did or he didn't because I take the position I don't have enough information. I think that's the best that anybody can do. Yeah, agree. Right, this next question. And opinion is split a little bit on this next question, but let's get to it first and let's see what happens. I don't mean yours or my opinion, by the way. Of your Christian friends and family members, which one would stand the best chance of convincing you or persuading you than the others? Even if you think none of them stand a chance, some stand more of a chance than others, right? Who would that be and why? Now, the reason why I say that this question is split a bit of opinion is I don't think this is a particularly interesting question. But I did mention this question to a Christian friend of mine, and they thought it was a great and really interesting question and were really? intrigued by what the answer would be. But I was like, I think it's a rubbish question. I think it's a completely uninteresting, unclever question, which points to how Christians who listen to atheists don't actually listen to atheists. <laughs> how many times do we have to say evidence for us not to get a question about arguments and personal convincing. Yeah, I, I don't know. I I will say with all sincerity, none of them stand a better chance than any of the others. None of them do. Are, are there some that I will hear out more than I would hear out others? The, the answer to that is yes. There are some people in my family that I'm closer to than I am others. There are some people in my family that I enjoy spending time with and therefore listen to more than I would listen to others. There is no one no one in my family who has a better chance of convincing me than anyone else, even, even while it's true that I would give some of them a longer hearing. Why? Because the kinds of questions I have can't be answered by individual human beings. That's a really good answer, Andrew, and I like that, and I wish I'd thought of that, because I hadn't quite got to quite such a good answer. I was prepared to grant one of my friends being slightly better than the others, but I think what I'm granting is not that they have a better chance, but that I would actually put more effort into hearing them out, which is the answer that you gave. And I think that's a really good distinction to make. Rather than copy your answer, I'm going to go with the answer that I originally came up with in my mind. And that's an old friend of mine, Steve. I've known him since before I was married. He's now a minister in the Church of England. He wasn't when we first met. We were in sort of 18 plus youth group together at, at church and we had a great old time. I have great respect for him. We lost touch for a couple of years and then we got back together, got re-established our connection again. We haven't seen each other over lockdown, obviously, but we're looking forward to catching up and meet up again. But, and this is this is the but bit, this is where my answer has um, a similarity with, with yours, uh, Andrew. The difference between Steve and everybody else is the difference between point one and point two, but the scale is not to 100. So mm -hmm. yeah, he has a better chance, but that better chance doesn't in any practicality get him any closer 
on any meaningful level whatsoever. Right, it's still a snowball's chance. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes, it, it's it, it's like the whole halfway there kind of thing we were talking about earlier. Mm. Yes, technically you could argue that he has a better chance, but the the reality is it, the measurement is irrelevant. I might even go as far as to say, um, I, I don't know who this would be, but let's just say there's someone in my family that I love and respect so deeply that I just believe the things they say to me because they are the kind of person I believe, what, whoever that is. But, but just even if I pretend that that person exists, and, and it's not in some cosmic oatmeal cookie sense, impossible to find that person that I believe just on force of their personality against mine. But the question doesn't go far enough because the question is not really whether there is somebody that could do that job. The question is whether I have been convinced for the right reasons. And that goes back to the sort of evidential question we were talking about earlier. There is no person that should be able to convince me that someone can live forever or that someone maintains an eternal torture chamber or doesn't or or that this person can rightly divide. I've said all of these things before. I feel like a broken record. And, and, and listeners, I'm sorry, you've got to be bored to death with that. I'm bored of saying it. I, I yeah. promise you, Matthew, I know you're bored of hearing it. I don't blame you. Whether someone could convince me, which in the cosmic little cookie sense isn't impossible, doesn't mean that I should be convinced. Yes, very good point. There's a difference between being convinced by something that's untrue and actually getting enough data to be able to say it is true. Right. Question six, another lighthearted short one, which we're probably going to take longer to talk about than is necessary, but here goes. What's your favorite film or television series? Favorite? Film or TV series? Go first, Andrew. Oh, goodness. I'm so tempted to say Squid Game. <laughs> Are you so watching that? Are you enjoying that? Oh, I, look, I, I finished it. I binged it in like three days. Um, I, I love Squid Game, but I will tell okay, you. So, so no spoilers. i got two episodes left. Oh, I want to so bad, but I won't. But I will tell you the truth. I am actually enjoying Alice in Borderland more. Right, okay. I'm really not a TV watcher. I mean, I, I got caught up in the cultural moment with Squid Game. I, I do think Alice in Borderland is, is slightly more interesting. Maybe not done as well, um, but I think it's slightly more interesting. As you know, I've, I've got vision trouble, right? So visual arts are not so appealing to me. I prefer movies in my mind. So I'm, I'm more of a reader, and uh, we can talk about that. For the next 10 hours so i won't and <laughs> there's I, no book questions he didn't ask book questions right, right, right. Let's see. Uh, he was doing our listeners a favor um but I, I really am more of a book person but if i but if i had to say um i like that sort of i got caught in an alternate sort of gaming reality sort of sort of story and um uh, squid game's great uh alice in borderland probably my preference i've not watched alice and boy i'm enjoying squid game it it's gripping i kind of like foreign films because they have a slightly different culture so they tell stories slightly differently Mm -hmm. and the koreans i think they've made squid game 
in a very different way to the way Hollywood would have made Squid Game. And I like that better because Hollywood would have done it in where they would have had much more focus on the some attention to detail. They'd have had much more focus on the quality of the special effects and the cost to that would have been the storyline. And there would have been some predictable, well-known tropes in the storyline as well. And all of that kind of stuff is missing from the, the Korean one. And I think they have a better story as a result. And so that's why I prefer the way the, the Koreans done it. Well, if Hollywood chooses to do a remake, yeah, I may watch it, but it, it won't be as good. Marbles episode, that one got me. Oh, that was yeah. the heart wrencher, that one. Oh, yes. Uh, I will just say without spoiling, whatever you think happened there, it didn't. Okay. There, the Marble episode is not over. That's all I'm telling you. I, I mean, look. Some okay. People, some people died. That's That's true. I can't say any more without spoiling, but you're not done with the Marvel episode. That's that's what I'm going to tell you. All right. <laughs> okay. Okay. I've only got two episodes left. Okay. You're not done with the Marvel episode. That's all I'm telling you. <laughs> oh, the trouble I'll, is, I've, I've, yeah, I've got rehearsals the next two nights. So I've got several days. De- it's going to be a few days before I get to watch the last two episodes. That's going to be at the weekend. Oh, dear. By the time you've listened to this, listeners, I will know the whole thing. What other things are I've just finished watching The Handmaid's Tale? Oh, I haven't watched it. You haven't watched okay. That's a little that's gripping, it's brutal, yeah. it's a little bit triggering, and I can very much imagine a world not too dissimilar if religious people were allowed to have total control. You know that was a book. Yes, I am aware that was a book first, yeah. yeah. Um I've not read the book. I haven't either. It's in my library. And I'll tell you the truth. I don't like books that spin out a long religious theme, even in sci-fi, which is which is generally where I spend the bulk of my pleasure reading. I just haven't started reading it, but I know that it's a, a cultural icon and that I should. I, I haven't watched Game of Thrones either. Uh, shock, gasp. So I've watched the first few series up series four maybe series five i can't remember how far i got but mm. um i haven't watched more than that partly because we, whichever broadcast channel it's on i don't subscribe to it so i can't watch it you're a computer person yeah i don't always. do that i don't you're, do that not not advocating folks not advocating <laughs> um i think squid game was great i like hard science fiction there's not a lot of that in the in the TV universe or or even in the, the big screen universe, you find most of your hard SF um, you know, somewhere in print. Not all of it, for sure, because of the vision trouble. I, I'm a reader. So question didn't really hit me just writing. No, that, and that's fair enough. I'd on the subject of, of that, because I know you do a lot of audio listening. There's I a do. podcast I listen to and it's uh, LeVar Burton Reads. And it's the Star Trek actor LeVar Burton reading short stories that he likes. And they're usually about an hour long, the episodes. And he reads very well. And his episodes are very well edited as well. There are sound effects, subtle sound effects to the stories that he's reading. He makes reference to a machinery or something. You can hear the sound of that machinery in the background. He does 
all the voices to all the characters. But again, it's subtle voice changes and you can hear it in the edit and it makes the enjoyment of listening to him reading a story that little bit better. And I enjoy and recommend that podcast. Oh, wow. So I didn't realize that he had a podcast. I, I loved his character and I'll be subscribing uh, as soon as we're done here. I'll say I I'd hoped uh, that he was going to be uh, the next full-time Jeopardy host. Uh, I thought he would have been a good one. Uh, he's not controversial. I don't know how Jeopardy survives without Alex Trebek anyway. It will survive. And uh, he was in the running, apparently. And um, I, I had hoped that that he would at least be there uh, some. And uh, we'll have to see what the future holds. But this is not like this going to be the case. Okay, there's just one more TV series that uh, I want to shout out. And this one is a special TV series, partly because there's supernatural elements to it, partly because it's my deconstruction TV. This is a TV series that I started watching when I was first starting to deconstruct. Mm. And because it was a supernatural heaven versus hell TV series, and there's your clue as to what this is going to be. There was a certain amount of guilt that I had in watching it because some of the expressions, some of the things done by the characters were potentially borderline blasphemous to my religious thinking at the time, which made it a no-go thing to watch. But I was gripped by it and enjoyed watching it. And there were times we had my wife and I had a TV in the bedroom, and I would wait till she was asleep before switching this tv program on to watch the next episode and if she was to move in her sleep i would look at her guiltily to say would she notice that this is what i was watching that is how i was that's how my mentality was when i first started watching this that was the tenderness in which i was at in those very early stages of my deconstruction so i simply didn't know where to put my religious brain i didn't know how to process some of these things that i was going And while this TV program offered comfort, it offered some quiet rebelliousness, there was still heaps of guilt associated with enjoying watching something which not very long previously I would have utterly condemned. And gradually, as I watched more of it and my deconstruction got deeper and deeper, the guilt went. I'm now very open about enjoying this TV series. I love this TV series immensely i am still waiting for the final series season 10 another clue there to come out onto i can't remember whether it's netflix or or the other one i think it's probably prime it's one of those two but it needs to come free that's prime it needs to come free on prime so i can watch the final season season 10 because i was unable to watch it uh via on sky because i don't pay for a sky subscription so that's my scene. So if you haven't guessed it already, listeners, I'm talking about Supernatural, that most excellent of TV series. It's absolutely, absolutely love it. Some fabulous humour. I love the concepts about communicating with angels and with demons and the, the battles going on and about the whole line about how God being missing. There's some really good, really subtle stuff going in there. And then about there's this whole thing about Adam's first wife as well, not Eve, um, Lilith, I think the name is, and all that kind of 
mystery and mythicism and all that pulling things in you know and names and uh, characterisms which i'm familiar with with some of my bible knowledge but also pulling in stuff from other cultures i loved the way they did it and i think for me it'll be hard a hard hard task for another tv series to be more appreciated by me than supernatural so I will tell you that uh, season 10 is not the end of Supernatural. There, there are at least five more seasons. Uh, in fact, I'm looking at a question here. Will there be a season 16? I know that there was not. Uh, OK, maybe maybe my numbers are wrong then, but I thought it was only the last season. that I, I, It could be I'm remembering wrong about it. Season 10, maybe I, it is whatever it is, season 15 or whatever. But anyway, what I understood was the final season is one that I've not watched. Oh, so I was I was I was hoping to like. If, if you thought 10 was it and you'd only gotten there, I was like, man, you got a lot. If you really love the series, you've got a lot more watching to do. So I was like, well, uh, but um, I will I will say that uh, I too like Supernatural. I haven't gotten to the end. I think I'm stopped watching it season six. The cult repeater. Man, just, just I'll, I'll tell you, I'm an American. I, I want one of those guns that doesn't run out of bullets. <laughs> <laughs> Um, See, that's I, I, the other thing that Hollywood does, you know, they have these guns that just uh, and mobile phones that never run out of battery as well. You know, right. how do they do this? I, I, I want to know what happened to to Dean and Sam's dad for real. Right. And as crazy as this is, that show got to me in some in some ways, like, you know, Sam's girlfriend uh, gets taken by a demon and, and she's. Uh, you know, she's tortured and killed. And I, I think they eventually hunt the demon down and they, and they you know, it gets its comeuppance, right? Um, but I don't think I could have watched. Uh, I, I left Christianity by the time I started watching Supernatural. And I think I've had the same response to it as you. I think it would have been really uncomfortable for me. And now I just love it. I, th- I think it's great. Yeah, right. Okay, let's move on because the next question, question seven, is the big one. I think this is one where we've got we're most at risk of burning serious time. So I'll I'll try and keep it short because I am watching the time tick by as we're going. Contingency arguments for God's existence can be framed in a number of ways, obviously, but pick one and what's your favorite response to this sort of contingency argument? Or if you're really ambitious, what's your favorite response to contingency arguments in general? Right, Andrew, do you want to just quickly summarize what contingency argument is for us, and then we'll go into it? Sure. So one of the most famous contingency arguments is one that you and I have unpacked several times in the past. It's the cosmological argument. That argument is everything that begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause. But the Kalam is in a category of arguments, which are sometimes called universal contingency, the prime mover argument, the first mover argument. All of the arguments that fall into this category have a particular form. And the idea is this kind of argument can be used to demonstrate, at least plausibly, that the universe is contingent and that the maker of the universe was some god. And that god, in turn, is not itself contingent. That is, there must have been a first mover. 
something that has the ability to create, but that it itself is uncreative. Do you have thoughts to add to that? Not really. You've, I think you've done it succinctly. There will be a link in the show notes, maybe a couple of links, depending on which uh, links that I find I feel are appropriate. I did notice that when searching for contingency argument, cosmological argument came up uh, in connection with it far more than, than anything else. But this goes back to one of our answers to one of the earlier questions is these are all arguments. These are all bringing back things, observations, maybe bits of evidence and piling them up together to form an argument which reaches a conclusion that the person is trying to reach that they already have. And I think that's the big problem here. These arguments are all framed to say there is a God and they're all framed to say there is a God by people who already believe there is a God. So there's a... And a modus operandi issue going on here, which we should draw attention to. And the other thing is that arguments using evidence elsewhere. And when we were, and as we were talking about with the whole car accident accident um, example that I was talking about earlier, is the evidence that they're bringing together really the right sort of evidence to lead to their conclusion, or are they misusing evidence that is really evidence for something else? So there's all this going on here. So I give very short thrift to these kind of arguments. They have very little sway with me whatsoever. I really am unimpressed with them at all. And I think the let's go actually let's go to the universe and the, which I think is the cosmological. And, you know, this whole basic premise is that something, everything, you and I, we're contingent on what came before. Yeah, okay, fine. Within the context of this universe, that is probably true. You can't then scale that out and go, oh, because within the universe it's true, therefore it must also be true for the universe. It might be that the universe isn't contingent on anything and there and it stops there. Yes. Or it might be that if there was a God that created the universe, that it doesn't stop there either. And that there is a God creator that creates the gods that creates the universes. You know, these are all playful things we can have fun with. And this is what philosophy does. It helps us to frame and to ask really interesting and challenging questions, questions that we will never have the answer to and questions that we need to come up with methodologies which will help us to answer the question. But don't make the mistake of thinking that that very same philosophy can also provide you with the answer that you have come up with. Because when you ask a question, then answer it the same way and go, ha ha, therefore God, you're making some fundamental errors. So to follow on for the end of Braxton's question, what is my favourite response to contingency arguments in general? That's <laughs> very simple. And I've already given it once to an earlier question. That's nice. Now, what's the experiment that you are going to do to test your conclusion? Right. So much here. I'm, I'm first not sure why it would have to be a god. There's a bit of sort of special pleading that it must be a god that does the creating. I'm not sure why it would have to be a god. Even in the case that we say the universe is insufficient to cause itself, I don't see how we could know that. I will readily admit that we have a universe and there's a, a chain of cause and effect that um, uh, that seems to be pretty clearly established. And so if you if you rewind time, as for instance, this is sort of what Hubble discovered, right? That the universe is expanding and that sort of changed everything. The universe is not in steady state. It, it's constantly expanding. And, and thank you, Hubble, for pointing it out to us. But rewinding the universe 
back to its moment of beginning should not get a careful thinker to therefore a God. I don't think that follows at all. And I don't get in any way that just because there's a God proposition, uh, we should accept it. So here's the ultimate problem. We have what I've often called, I don't remember if I've done it here, but I call this the problem of the outside. And it goes like this. It seems that no matter what explanation a materialist might come up with, a Christian could just say, right, but God's outside of that. And God must have done it. It's the problem of the outside. So before we started talking seriously about multiverses or parallel universes, God did it. And then we started talking seriously about parallel universes or the multiverse because they're not exactly the same. Christians said, oh, right, but God must be outside that. And so God must have done it. There can always be this problem of the outside. And Matthew, you are absolutely right to just point out that arguments aren't evidence. And I think I can be done there, too. Okay, cool. Let's move on. Right, three last questions. I, well, I kind of like this one, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Question eight. On your understanding of Christianity, what does it take for a person to become a Christian and experience everlasting life? Now, I've been asked questions like this previously on, on forums when I've been having a conversation with Christian. Now, I want to make it absolutely clear, I am not accusing Braxton of doing this. Let's just make that absolutely clear. This is not an accusation pointed at Braxton. But there have been Christians that have asked this, and I've had this deep suspicion that the reason why they ask this question of me is whatever answer I give them, they're going to tell me that I misunderstand the requirements for entry into Christianity. And then use that to say and to hold me up as an example of an atheist who doesn't understand Christianity. Yeah. And, and I'll say, uh, truth is, I no longer have any idea. Here's what I am convinced of. If a Christian asked their God to tell me what it took to become a Christian, and let's just pretend for the sake of argument that some God, the right Christian God, said, okay, going to take the challenge, going to tell Andrew exactly what it takes to become a Christian. No one, not everyone, some people would believe me, but it would just be because it was coincidentally in line with their doctrine. Not everyone would believe me. And they shouldn't. Because if God speaks into my head and he doesn't speak into your head, why should I be a reliable witness? Why, or why should you think of me as one? I haven't given you anything to confirm that a God spoke into my head. I haven't given you necessarily uh, depending on what the answer was, I haven't given you necessarily any way to know that you're therefore a Christian. And this is the problem with the formulas today. This is the problem. That you can follow any recipe you want to become a Christian. You can say the sinner's prayer, and, and maybe that'll work. You can go and be sprinkled with water. Maybe that's the magic formula. You can go and be dunked in water. 
maybe maybe you're some sort of, of hybrid snake worshiper. So you're a snake handling Christian, and, and that's the magic formula because you really believe. None of these formulas have managed to distinguish themselves from any others as somehow being more true than their Christian counterparts. So even if a God told me exactly what it took, why would you believe me? In the spirit of the question that Braxton's asked, I'm going to answer it to my understanding. And it basically goes back to my memory of, as a child, praying the sinner's prayer, asking for forgiveness. So it is literally having in your mind an attitude of, awareness of being a sinful person in need of uh, salvation from the Christian God and expressing that obviously through prayer because there is no other way you can express it really Mm. that that is what you are doing and with a genuine mind I was going to say heart but with a genuine mind of uh, penitence ask for that salvation so okay that's fairly simple it's a bit ritualistic but okay then i'm remembering peculiarities which give a kind of tiered structure to the kind of christian that you are like churches i've been in where if you hadn't been baptized through full immersion you're not entitled to membership of the church to vote in the meetings to serve on the eldership of the church or even in some cases growing up in zambia to take communion you know you Mm. wouldn't you couldn't take communion unless you've been baptized you know this creates a very tiered christian approach what's all that about you know aren't you all equally loved and saved you know what's with the structure and don't even get me started on where women stand goodness there are issues i have with christian salvation hierarchy but that's my straightforward answer it's I don't, I'm not really interested in answering this kind of question, but I guess for Christians, it's important to hear us elucidate an answer because it helps them to tick box, you know, do we understand? Yeah, I, I don't understand. Uh, the, the, the truth is, I don't understand what it takes to become a Christian. I've lived part of my life in an extremely conservative occult, actually, where they had a, a formula. I'll tell you that I followed the formula twice because the first time I wasn't sure it took um, yeah, I've been there. Yeah, I've seen so many people do that. Yeah, yeah. Look, our, our formula is here, believe, repent, confess, be baptized, and thereafter live a faithful life. Okay, I was baptized at 14, something like that. I never felt like a Christian. Now, let, let me point out that I did all of the other things, too. I heard, I believed, I repented of my past wrongs, I confessed that Jesus was my Savior, Right. I, all of those things are parts of other formulas. I actually did the other things like praying to have Jesus come into my heart and, you know, the whole sinner's prayer thing. I actually did all of those things, too. And I went a bit further. I just went and got wet. I, I didn't feel different afterwards either time. I've even been in conversations where people have said if you didn't speak in tongues, you weren't a proper Christian. So it could well be that there are some Christians who don't actually understand what it takes to be a Christian. Uh, man, my southern accent's pretty thick. Does that get me? That gets you a buy. You don't, you, don't, you don't need to go into the playoffs. You just get straight in. Right. 
I, I really don't know. I, I really don't know what it takes to become a Christian. I would be happy to have if, if you're listening and you have a formula that you followed to become a Christian and you think you really are. And I, I don't mean that that you think it's the right formula. I mean that God said to you, yeah, by the way. Now you're a Christian. You know, if the if the heavens opened up and and doves descended and somebody said, this is my beloved son, daughter, hermaphrodite, <laughs> in whom I'm well pleased. Yeah. Uh, if, if you have that kind of experience, I'd love to talk about it. Because my problem with these formulas for becoming a Christian is. I don't know other than people just saying I did this thing and now I am why anybody thinks they are. What what happened after your moment of conversion where you said, okay, now I'm the genuine article. I'm the true Scotsman. That's the thing I want to know because the rest of it doesn't make any difference. My formula doesn't matter. What matters is what was your formula and why do you think it worked? Okay, sorry, slightly tangential, apologies. No worry, we are on the final furlong after all. Right, question nine. Whether you think anything in the Bible is true or not, do you think that the Bible or any passage in the Bible seems to teach eternal conscious suffering in hell? Maybe you think it teaches universal ultimate salvation or annihilation, the idea that people will no longer be conscious but will be annihilated and no longer have a conscious experience of anything. And I should say, I'm partly asking that question because a friend of mine, Chris Date at Rethinking Hell, would be happy to have a discussion or a debate on the subject of whether any Bible passage teaches eternal conscious torment. You know what? I'm just not interested. Simply not interested. I've done enough thinking about hell. I don't think about hell now. I actually don't care what anybody thinks, what the Bible says about hell. I don't have enough of an opinion to care what the Bible says about hell, it's simply not a factor of my thinking. Don't care. I'm quite happy for Christians to argue about it over themselves. I'm not interested in being in that bun fight. I'm just going to sit in the corner, drink my beer and enjoy the show. That is absolutely how much I want to have to do with this one. I am totally going to let that be the last word, man, because I, I feel exactly the same way. When you Christians figure it out, Send us an email, reasonpress at gmail.com. Love, love to have that discussion. <laughs> but, but I yeah. just don't. <laughs> yeah. I, I just don't care. By the way, I, I don't care that your God thinks homosexuals should be killed. I don't care that your God thinks you should hit your kids. I don't care that your God thinks your wife should be in submission. There's, I mean, <laughs> when all of you folks get all of those things sorted out because Christians differ on all of these things. You know, reasonpressgmail.com. Matthew and I would love yeah. to hear the final answer. But being serious for a moment, there are some very serious and interesting discussions that we can have about hell. This episode is not the place for them. But if you've got someone who's got an academic interest in hell, or you know somebody who's got an academic interest in hell, or can tell us about the history of how we've landed at the versions of hell we've got now and what they used to be and all that and what the various words being used are and what they actually mean and what they mean now and all that. I fully acknowledge there is 
stacks and stacks of interesting conversations to have about that. Now is not the time, but please, reasonpressagema.com, let's have that. And we can do an entire episode talking about how, and we'll enjoy it and we'll engage with it. But right now, in the context of this question, in this series, in this episode, is not the time, and I simply lack the enthusiasm. Yep, I am in the same place. I don't care whether your God maintains an eternal torture chamber or he switches everybody off like a light. If your God wanted a, a heaven full of, of free will creatures that worshipped him, if he's all powerful, he could have made free will creatures that worshipped him. Even if he's not all powerful, he could simply look like a good engineer, like a good designer and say, oh, look, the soul printing machine made this batch and they were no good. So I'm going to quit making batches like that because here's a kind of person that worships me, they they did it all their lives, it was free will, and they're going to go to heaven, and they're the kind of person I want, and I'm all powerful, I can make some more of them. I don't care whether your God has an eternal torture chamber or whether he switches people off like a light, uh, if they displease it. A halfway competent, halfway competent God could fill heaven with as many free will worshipers as he wanted, and he didn't have to send nine, or nine out of ten to hell or to annihilation. I just don't mm. care. Okay, final <laughs> question before we <laughs> Sorry, write this <laughs> Yeah, we talk, we, that was a lot of words about something that you don't care about. <laughs> you made me care, man. <laughs> <laughs> you don't care about Windows either until you talk to me. Then it's the most important subject in the world. Hang on, no, I'm going to stop there. Oh, question so 10, and we're moving on. <laughs> Last see. question. See, see, I knew that was going to come back. Yep. Right. Final one. What do you think is the most dangerous or problematic issue that theologically conservative Christians hold to? And I'm talking about an issue or a position, not a person, a movement, or a party. Now, this one is the interesting <laughs> question. It is. He saved the best for last. Yeah. Uh, not a person or party. Uh, issue or position an issue or position i don't know that i have a single answer here but in general if i had to give a single answer it wouldn't be about a position it would be a meta problem it would be that christians think there's a magic book and this magic book can tell them what the right answer is to any problem and because this magic book can give them the right answer. They're willing to legislate any issue on the basis of what's in the magic book. For me, the problem with Christianity is not so much I do or don't believe in abortion, or I do or don't believe in drinking, or I do or don't believe in dancing, or I should or shouldn't hit my kids, or my wife should or shouldn't be subservient, or women can or can't preach. It's none of that. And yet it's all of it. Because you think there's a magic book that can legislate the answers for you and you're willing to give up for those Christians who are willing to give up. You're willing to give up your own thought, your own hard work, your own investigation and just use the magic. And that's the problem I see. Yeah, I'm going to expand a bit on that. Please. It's it's the I know what I want to say. It's I'm struggling to articulate the right words to say it. 
it, it's this attitude that they can dictate to others, especially those who are not people who share their faith, what they can do with their lives. Uh, they've got this feeling. Let's go for abortion because that's probably the easiest and simplest example mm -hmm. to, to go for it on. There are so many Christians who want to make abortion illegal. Absolute, no exceptions, full stop, illegal. And it's that firmness of conviction that this goes beyond their Christian faith, but they must be able to dictate to other people who don't hold to the same faith that they must fall in line to their way of thinking. Whether they agree or not, they get the chance to make these rules. It's that, it's that attitude which I think is dangerous or problematic. And it, having watched now The Handmaid's Tale and the structure of the fictional world, Gilead, and some of the things that were in place, there were so many moments during that TV series where I thought, this is what Christians are trying to do. I can see this being a world or elements of this world being a world that Christians would love. And everything about that world, Gilead, was scary and fearful. And people were afraid, even people with authority and power, were afraid to be seen to be not doing the right thing. Sorry, they were afraid to be seen to be doing the wrong thing because it, regardless of their power, they could still fall and end up being hung <clears> on the wall. And I think it's this ferocity and absolutism which elements of conservative Christianity bring and the whole banning of abortion, no exceptions. It's just one. You know, there are other parts of it as well. You've got these people taking brides, wives who are far, far, far too young. Yeah, you've got, from me being on the outside, there's utterly a sane desire to have freedom to carry guns in, in public. <laughs> and various other other elements. Now, guns don't mean freedom. They're a prison for crying out loud. Just travel the world and see. And other elements of Christianity, which is all about controlling other people. You know, my life in a Christian boarding school was controlled so much more than it was uh, elsewhere. This is what I see as uh, the dangerous and problematic uh, issues that arise out of this kind of uh, fervent religious uh, adherence, this uh, absolute firm hand control. It's deeply, deeply unhelpful. There's nothing free about it at all. And all these people going on and on and on about free will, but not allowing people to have freedom uh, at all by structuring the, the world and the lives in which they live by their preferences, by some obscene rules of, of morality. So that's what I see as it, and I see it as, as quite terrifying, actually, the end results of what life could be under an absolutist uh, Christian country. I, the, the thought of it genuinely terrifies me. It's, it's not something that I find pleasant whatsoever.
So that's what I see as uh, problematic issues with uh, conservative Christianity. And I and as Christianity gets poked at more and more, I see more and more desperation coming from these voices. And with this desperation comes what is apparent to me, a stronger and stronger desire to control, especially to control those who are not Christian. And that is what is going to break countries. It's going to break America, I'm pretty sure about it. It will break elements of America, if nothing else. It's going to end, yeah, if we look at what's happening into the Middle East, where you've got that kind of thing, yeah, it, the same will happen under Christianity as well. We, you know, freedom is found outside of religion and this uh, societal prison that Christians create for others is an issue, very, very serious issue. And I'm not being polemic when I say that it scares me. It scares me too. And I don't have anything to add to your answer. I, I live in America. I am someday scared to be here because uh, a great many of the same people who are carrying guns are the loudest Christians. If there is a part of this world that is similar to The Handmaid's Tale, but I haven't watched the series and read the book, but there's enough culture around it that I get the reference of some of the story. Kabul, Afghanistan, is going through an absolutely brutal religious uprising. And the loudest Christians, some of them who are well-armed, would turn these United States into a couple. No, they wouldn't be singing, uh, screaming, Allah Akbar. They'd be shouting, praise Jehovah. I don't want my daughter to grow up in Kabul, Afghanistan, or anything like it. Well, that was a cheery note to end on, wasn't it? Sorry. Braxton, put the depressing questions at the beginning. Let's have the fun ones at the end. (laughs) End for next time. (laughs) We should have pinned on chickens. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Mac or PC. Oh, no, 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 not that one. (laughs) No, no, no. We submitted on Squid Game. That was. uh, Look, you're you're right. I'm afraid that it's going to break break this United States. Texas is. the Texas abortion ban. I, I'm, I don't want to spin us back into that. But if Texas wins this fight, and, and I'd love to do a show on the problem of, of essentially just deputizing anybody in the world to bring a lawsuit, right? So if Texas wins this fight, it won't stop at abortion. What What's next? I guarantee you homosexuality is in the playbook. What's after homosexuality? What about premarital sex? What about your daughter's right to wear what she wants? What about... I mean, they're going to be back to wearing swimming costumes, which cover their knees. Yes. We will lose the ground that we have gained in human rights. Look, let's just say that Matthew and I are... Well, actually, Matthew, I don't want to speak for you here, but I, I think that you support the right to choice under the right circumstances. Yeah. Uh, okay. All right. So with that said, let's say Matthew and I are wrong because I support choice as well. well. Let's say that we're wrong about abortion. Okay. Fine. We're wrong about abortion. But do you want 
a world where we can be wrong about abortion and you can be free? Or do you want a world where whatever your cherished idea is, if it's not in line with whatever the Christians managed to win, you're on the outside? You see, that's actually the fight here. The fight isn't about abortion. In the main, certainly that is the central issue, but it won't be the end issue. And I beg you, if you are in Texas, if you have influence, I beg you to talk about this in a meaningful, substantive way because abortion's not the end game here. But I guarantee you, you let it stand, and we may never get to Kabul, Afghanistan in the United States, but it will no longer be out of the realm of possibility. Fight for freedom. Well, this continues to be continues to be depressing. (laughs) Any more things we need to flag up then before we ride out? No, uh, I enjoyed this. I enjoyed the fact that it was uh, that that we got to talk about some fun things. We got to talk about chickens and Squid Game and and all sorts of stuff. I am a little disappointed that it ended on this note, but this was just the way the questions were ordered, right? Yep. So uh, aware of it. Yeah, we've been far less critical. First set, quite ten that we did, we were a bit critical about several of the questions. We've been less critical. Yeah, there were a couple of questions where we said, nah. but generally, I think we've been less critical of the questions. Yeah, I think so, too. And I am looking forward to the next chance that we get uh, to be together. Uh, I know that you've got a heavy play schedule and um, I admire you. I really do. I'm looking forward to the next time we get to uh, to come together and I'm ready to do another review series. Uh, hopefully we'll have some more interesting guests. Darren is certainly an interesting guest. Uh, the next two shows, like you said, will be with uh, David J from over at Skeptics and Seekers. So it'll be almost Christmas by the time you get to those. So enjoy the holiday season. We'll have things planned for the new year and for, for next year and post-COVID and all that junk. But it's not Christmas yet. There's episodes to listen to, episodes to record. Have a great time. See you when the rest of the cold is over. Good night. You have been listening to a podcast from Reason Press. Do you have any thoughts on what you've just heard? Do you have a topic that you would like us to cover? Please send all feedback to reasonpress at gmail.com. You might even appear on an episode. Our theme music was written for us by Holly. To hear more of her music, see the links in our show notes.